You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 74 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Well, I'm a little bit soggy this morning, it has to be said, Valerie. A little bit wet around the edges. Well, it's pouring and of course, Procrasty Pup still requires a walk because otherwise it's just a very long day for a sad puppy. Mm. So um, we went out in the rain this morning for our walk. Does he wear Um, a raincoat? No, he's got these are border collie. He's got deep layers of fluff. Okay, well, my doggies have a raincoat, but anyway. I know, but your dogs are not tough country border collie dogs. <laughs> okay. Just, it, it's quite funny. He gets little frizzes around his ears. That's oh. about the only sign. And he dries in two seconds flat. Like, dogs don't actually need raincoats, Val. I don't, you know, got to tell you. Some do, some do. Some, some don't want to get wet. Dogs. Yeah. <laughs> Boys, come on. <laughs> well, apart from being soggy, what else have you been up to? Oh, what have I been up to? I'm just trying to think. I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm writing lots of things at the moment, all of which are, you know, not really worth discussing. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing lots and lots of different things. I, it's book week this week, so I'm actually, I'm preparing to go and do. Um, some school talks, which is exciting. I've got the visiting author talk. Oh, let me ask you this question. Yes. Do you remember book week as a kid? I do remember book week. And what we used your... to like dress up and stuff. Yeah. What's your yes. most memorable costume? Can you remember? Oh, probably Paddington Bear. <laughs> you dressed up as Paddington Well, because I had one of those coats. Did you wear ears? Well, no. Well, how could you be Paddington Bear? Well, we, I wasn't very good at it. Clearly. <laughs> My parents weren't really, you know, big on the let's help, <laughs> you know, make an impression oh. at school kind of front. My mum hated Book Week. I, I, have to, I, have to, I have to be really upfront about this. As a parent, Book Week is one of my least favourite weeks of the entire year mm. <laughs> because I am so, I'm not crafty, as we have discussed on many, many occasions. And so coming up with the costume is just it's just it's never been good for me so I'm a little probably a bit a little bit like your mum in that sense mm-hmm. and my mum it's a tradition in our family although my sister Maxabella is quite into it but um so I remember as a kid my, my most memorable book week ever mm-hmm. was this one particular time that my mum sent me in an orange skivvy and some brown cords with a pile and of you're books a Jaffa? wait yeah <laughs> nice sorry. brown cords nice like seriously you're gonna insult me like that um <laughs> A pile of books under my arm and a pair of spectacles. Uh-huh. Who now, are you? you got, I was an intellectual. <laughs> I was eight. Okay? I just want to put that right out there. So that, but that's the kind of tradition I'm coming from. Oh. And I remember that particular year that a girl came in as Cleopatra and she was carried in, oh. like lying. She was older. 
on a thing with a with the wig, and she and she had four like boys carry her in on a like stretcher thing because oh she was Cleopatra, oh and I'm God. there in an orange skivvy. Can we just talk about that? Yeah. So anyway, the scars run deep for Book Week. But I just I have a tip and I, I want to share this with all the mums out there. Mm-hmm. The best thing that I ever did as a mum for Book Week yes. was to get my boys a cloak each. Oh. You get a cloak. Yes. You know, it's just a nice colour, neutral colour, green, brown, grey, that kind of colour. Mm. You can get them, like you can make them if you're good like that. Mm. Get someone to make one for you. They're pretty easy, I think. Mm. Um, and then you can just be anyone. Any boy in a cloak in any book. So those oh. cloaks have been Rangers Apprentice, they have been Brother Band, they right. have been Hobbits, they have been Dwarves, yes. they have been Robin Hood, they have been – and all you do is change in the accessories. So last year, my Mr. Eleven, he went as Quinn to yes. the Book Week Parade in the cloak, same cloak. Yes. He wore an animal tooth necklace. He wore brown pants, white shirt. He carried an antique map like, mm. that he'd made with coffee stains. Clever. He was Quinn. So that's what I'm, that is my tip. Get a cloak. It yes. will save you years and years of agony. Very diverse. Mm, well, so diverse. Good Best tip. Thing. Anyway, let's move on. I'll what get a cloak for, for my dogs for book week. I'm sure they'll love it and it will also keep them dry. Yes. Absolutely. What have you been doing? Let's move on from cloaks. What have, you <laughs> what have I been doing? I had a flying visit to Melbourne uh, on the weekend just very quickly to do a few things, speak at a couple of events, soak in the atmosphere of the Melbourne Writers' Festival. But it was a very quick visit and um, – I am back in Sydney now, but I'm heading back to Melbourne in a couple of days for the tail end of the Melbourne Writers' oh, Festival. So fantastic. that should be fun. Yes. That will be lots of fun. But a few and other um, exciting things. I... Oh, go on, go on. I want to segue back to Book Week for just okay, a minute. I'm sorry, back. I should have segued in a better way before. But I, I've, I have massive congratulations to hand out to our fellow, well, my fellow presenter, Judith Russell. Yes. Who, whose book, Withering by Sea, was named an honour book for older readers in the Children's Book of the Year Awards this year um, from the Children's Book Council of Australia. It's, so, it's such a huge thing um, to happen and it's so exciting that, you know, the, that an um, Australian Writer Centre presenter is right up there, baby. Absolutely brilliant, brilliant, because the other exciting news, which also occurred on the weekend, was that Candace Fox, who's also an Australian Writers Centre presenter, won her second Ned oh. Kelly Award for Crime Fiction. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, go Candace so, and go Judith. I'm, I'm clapping. Rounds mm. of applause. Yeah, all yeah me too. <laughs> go girls. Yeah. Right. Let's fantastic. move on to what else is happening in the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week. Okay. What have you got for us? Well, I've just got a cute little link and it's from a site called Blonde Write More. I don't know. The tagline is, she is blonde. Some say she is funny. She now wants to write her bestseller. But anyway, it was a cute post that is 10 things we need – Sorry, 10 things we think we need to do before we start writing. Okay. Now, what might some of those things be? Like, oh, have a coffee. I'm just going to make myself a coffee before I start writing. Vacuuming. I'm just going to run the hoover over before I start writing. (laughs) You know, nip to the shops. I'm just going to nip to the shops and get some essentials before I start writing. Tidy the entire house. Have a bath. Start a 1,000-piece jigsaw. (laughs) I'm going to focus the mind before I start writing. Yes, I know the last jigsaw took me three days to complete. This one will be different. I will be more focused afterwards. Oh, absolutely. What things do you you have to do? (laughs) That was my question. I'm asking you. 
I'm going to get in first with this because I think your list will be highly entertaining. I definitely do all of the above except for the 1,000-piece jigsaw. And the other big procrastination... Do you hoover? Um, sometimes, not that often. Okay, <laughs> yes, I was going to say that's pretty keen. <laughs> yeah, not that often. But one of the things I do is I like getting all the knots out of my cat Rex's hair. Oh so no! <laughs> I'll spend an hour just brushing him, getting all his knots out, so he's nice and fluffy. And before, because that's that's so important to to do before I start writing. As yeah, a result, yeah. he's really well brushed. He must be gorgeous. It is, yes. It's the most beautiful cat in the world. But what do you do? Well, I okay, so my routine is I have to go for a walk. This is Ooh. this is my daily this is my daily thing, guys. Okay, so I get the children out of the house, which is always the first thing that has to happen. Yes. And then I have to go for a walk and I have to buy a coffee. Yes. Like I'll make one at home, but then I actually have to walk out and buy one as well or I don't feel like I've actually started my day. Oh yes. And then I come home and I have to make all the beds. Ooh. I don't know why. Well, really? I do. Well, no, I do. I have to make all the beds because otherwise, I sit here thinking, "Oh, you know, this is just something I need to do." Oh, I make all the I beds. I so don't I, do that. I know, but then I come and I sit down at my desk, you know, with a glass of water, and then I have to check all my emails, and then I have to check Facebook, and then I have to check Twitter, you know, Gmail, wherever, all the things, and then, then what do I do? Then I might think about it. About record that a podcast. Point. Record a podcast. Mondays are always good for that. I record a podcast. But it's it's that sort of thing of like there's a certain rituals. And I remember talking, I did an interview with um, Di Blacklock, Diane mm-hmm. Blacklock one mm-hmm. time. She's, a, a you know, the Australian author, very successful of um, sort of com- contemporary women's fiction. Yes. And she was saying that it was like we were like dogs. You know, we have to do circles in <laughs> before we'll lay down in our beds. If you ever watch a dog, yes. they'll like walk around themselves and their tails before they will actually then sit down in the middle of themselves and sort of go to sleep. Yeah. And she she kind of likened writers to that, that there are just certain things that you need to do. You've got to circle around yourself a few times before you can concentrate on the task at hand. And I have to agree with that. I do feel a bit like that sometimes, like I'm walking in circles before I concentrate. So, yeah, all of those things. I knew someone who used to get into the car, drive out the driveway, drive around the block and then drive back in and then start. Yeah, okay, that's pretty keen. I guess that's the equivalent of walking with a dog yes. to get a coffee. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. Because then you come home and you feel like you've done something useful. Anyway, moving on. All what right, else moving on. Uh, so I mentioned the Melbourne Writers' Festival before and one of the key speakers at the Melbourne Writers' Festival on the weekend that's just gone, but obviously the festival goes over many days, was Mark Latham. And he was interviewed Mm. by Jonathan Green at the festival and he just basically, you know, had a meltdown and was, you know, he called Jonathan Green a nonstop bagger and sneerer and an ABC wanker. And, um, yes, and um, and uh, he 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 said, "This is how I talk in the western suburbs of Sydney in the pub with my mates at sporting events. And if you don't like it, you can f off." He said to one audience member, mm-hmm. and he said, "What's wrong with a bit of unfiltered conversation and the word f and c?" Mm. And some people in the audience walked out of the event, and you know he was just generally. Mm, what should we say, belligerent? Yeah. And the official Twitter account of the Melbourne Writers' Festival said, we're disappointed in Mark Latham's appearance today, not the respectful conversation we value. Now, 
My issue with this is that I'm all for freedom of speech, but I just do not understand why any festival, not just the Melbourne Writers Festival, any festival will give someone like this a platform who isn't doesn't really have considered opinions. And well, he can say what he likes, you know, because I'm all for freedom of speech, but why would you give someone like that a platform who is antagonistic, belligerent, and uh, doesn't make a lot of sense? Well, I, look, I think... I think there's a couple of things at play here. I think that at some level um, there are some mental health issues going on there that um, that probably require addressing mm-hmm. with Mr it, Latham. It um, now, as far as the Melbourne Writers Festival goes, I guess uh, he would have been booked into their program a long time ago. Um, his, his entire column thing kicked off only over the last couple of weeks um, badly, like I mean, it's been awful for a long time, yes. but it's really it really went to town with that Twitter account stuff. Um, so, in some ways, you know, the timing is just unbelievably bad from that perspective. Yes, because um, he's obviously, you know, angry and all of that sort of stuff about that. I, I think it's important that a writers' festival brings different voices to the stage, and I think it's important that some of these things are discussed. But I don't think that he um, was in the right or is at this point in the right frame of mind for any sort of considered conversation and was never going to be. Like he's not a particularly considered man, is he? Well, I think that's the point. Even though that he was booked in a long time ago, he has not been cons- – uh, he has not had a considered opinion for a long, long time. He said many crazy things that don't make sense for a long, long time. So I don't know so, what they uh, were expecting. Well, uh, uh, they – probably weren't expecting it to be quite as bad as it was. They would have been expecting, I mean, look at the two people they've put together there. They were expecting a heated debate, shall we say. Mm. But um, well, I think I, they were deluded to think that because it's, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that that's not going to happen. No, they probably weren't. But they're also like, you know, I guess the other thing that with a, with a festival program like that, because, you know, in some ways festival programs, and I, oh, Meredith Kernow, who we're speaking to today, mm. On our uh, who's, who's, who was our interview for today? Yes. We were discussing it a little on Friday. She was saying that because she was the um, founding director of the Sydney Writers Festival yep. in 1999 to 2001 or two, mm-hmm. um, she was saying that she feels that writers festivals now have become as much about ideas as they have about actually being about literature. Yes, and I think some of it goes towards that that push in the direction of everybody, everything seems to be turning into a festival of dangerous ideas. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Um, and I suspect that that some of the, you know, they knew that it was going to be controversial. I don't think they maybe realised how controversial, given his state of mind after the events of the last couple of weeks. They were looking for controversy, I think, because, you know, I guess controversy, you know, lights up Twitter, let's face it, lights up social media, um, gets you... Yeah, it gets your Writers' Festival ideas out there. Um, so possibly that, and I think it's probably gone, blown up a lot more than they expected it to. Yeah, definitely. And, of course, if there's any international listeners, Mark Latham was there, is an author and he's a former politician. He was the former leader of the opposition and um, now crazy person. Well, let's move I, on. I, I don't think you can label him that. I don't – I just – I feel like I look at that train wreck occurring and I think that there's you know there's bigger issues to play there yes all right fair enough 
so let's move on to, well, speaking of festivals, uh, Joanne Harris, who, of course, is famous for the book Chocla, um, is, uh, has written, has been interviewed in um, The Independent recently, and she talks about writers' festivals and what they've mm. become because she's saying that we've got hundreds of festivals now because usually you just had the big main ones, but now mm. there's lots of much smaller ones as well. But she says some of them are very large and have a lot of backing, but they're not paying authors for their mm. contribution. She says, historically, we've had a situation where publishers were quite happy to pay something towards people's expenses, but really authors did this sort of thing out of goodwill. I think if it's for good causes, a lot of authors are quite happy to do that, but where you now have massive expansions and elevated ticket prices and a sort of culture where celebrity guests are being paid large fees, to still be able to justify not paying authors is becoming a more and more precarious position. So what, that's an interesting take on it because she's saying that you know people, are, festivals and some publishers are paying for the big names, the celebrity authors or the, you know, the celebrity bloggers in some cases to come over and um, and, and headline an event or to, to appear in an event. But then the other authors, which make up the bulk of the event, aren't getting paid. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's an interesting thing. I think with smaller festivals that are establishing themselves, um, then it's it's more of an understandable thing. Like it's, there's not, you know, like we do have hundreds of writers' festivals now, even yeah. in Australia, you know, let alone um, the UK, around the world, et cetera. Um, and they they can be great. Like I, I love smaller festivals. I think they're a great place to go, particularly when you're starting out as an author and a presenter, um, to go and, and cut your teeth. Like that sort of stuff is important. Like it, it's, it's sort of the, the thing of I, I don't roll up to something when I don't know how to do it and expect to be paid a lot of money to do it. So I'm quite happy to do, um, you know, in, in smaller festivals and things. And in some Saying that, I haven't actually been asked to anything that I haven't been paid for. I just really want to put that out there. Like it's, um, it's. I know that it. I know that lots of people are, and I know that it does go go on and, and in smaller festivals. Um, for example, I'm doing the superhero, the Shoalhaven Superhero Conference in a few weeks' time. I'm the author patron of that. That's all volunteer. Like I'm just everything I do um, in the lead up to that and on the day is volunteer work because I believe in the actual. It's a a local thing, and I believe in the actual thing. So. I think it comes down to what you what you're doing, but the Sydney Writers Festival, for example, you know the the authors are paid to go to that um, and to present their workshops and their panels and 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 their knowledge and things like that. If she's talking about big festivals like that, where some people are getting paid and some aren't, then I think that's completely wrong, completely wrong. Because you know if you're if you're invite you you don't go to the Sydney Writers Festival or something like that, unless you're invited to be on the program, yep. um, you can pitch your work, et cetera. You can pitch your presentations, but the the festival director has to decide that that's you know that that you're you know that you're that you're on the program. And if that's the case, then you should be paid to be there. I think, yeah. particularly if particularly if they're selling tickets to what you're doing. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's what that comes down to it too. If all the events are free, it's a slightly different situation. But if you're if everybody's paying ninety bucks to go to your thing, then why would you not be? And the festival is benefiting from that. Then why are you not being paid to do it? I don't absolutely. get it. Yep. What do you think about the whole thing? 
Well, I think that, as you say, that they've become festivals of ideas as opposed to festivals of writing. So it's become more and more diverse. It's not just authors. It, there are so many writers' festivals now that are inviting, you know, massive um, uh, bloggers with huge followings or people who are big on YouTube and, um, you know, and stuff like that because they have an audience and they're creating content, which is your mm. favourite word I know. So mm. I think that some of them have become so diverse that it they have moved away from um you know actually being writers festivals and that's fine because they're still thoroughly enjoyable then but obviously it's Mm. it's catering to a different market but anyway there's still more of the melbourne writers festival to go and uh we'll have more to talk about next week i'm sure but i wanted to move on to something that's kind of a warning to people oh Yes. So I was just looking around my Amazon account and I, you know, sometimes buy things for my Kindle on there and occasionally buy actual books, but usually I buy my books locally from Australia. Um, But uh, I was sort of looking around my account and I realised somehow I had become a member of Amazon Prime. I don't actually remember how I did that, but maybe I had – you know, click something and because your credit card is already stored in Amazon, yeah, uh, yeah I'd become a, a member of Amazon Prime because it – and with Amazon Prime you can borrow uh, one Kindle book per month and then you can return it like a library. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. Um, but there are, there are only specific books. I mean, there's 800,000 you can choose from, but they have to be part of a particular Kindle lending library. Although I found it so difficult to find out exactly which books – were in the Kindle lending library. And then I looked and I realised that I had been charged $99 ah. um, uh, in December of just so, you know, eight months ago. So it's up for renewal this December. And I had no idea. Um, I must admit I'm, I take full responsibility because no doubt I clicked something that I suspect it was something that gave me a free trial to Amazon Prime, which would then tick over to the real thing. And obviously ah. it ticked over to the real thing without me even thinking about it. So there was $99 gone to Amazon and I haven't borrowed a single thing or used oh, Amazon no. Prime in any way during that time. So just a warning, you might be – check your credit card. You might be being charged for Amazon Prime by accident. There you I'm, go. Gonna, I'm checking as we speak. You I'm should here. Check, check, your, check in the My Account section of You your, are not an Amazon Prime well, member. Well, there you go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That worked out well. Yeah, but even I, I thought, oh, well, I'm a member. Uh, if I'm a member, I might be able to take advantage of this borrowing thing and just see how it works. But I actually found it next to impossible to find out the act, which books I could select from without having to go through every single book and it, it having a little, um, you know, sign there saying eligible for Amazon Prime. Yeah, very difficult. Anyway. And also, let's just – another warning on that too is that if you are a member of Amazon Prime um, – Authors are only being paid for the number of pages that you read mm. of their books. So if you borrow a book, try, try to read get the to whole the thing. end. Please try yes. to get to the end of it. Yes. <laughs> yes. But you Please. have an interesting link for us. I do. I actually have another warning. Let's go. It's okay. a clearly it's a warnings kind of day. Now, this is an interesting one because um, – this was on Joanna Penn's website, thecreativepen.com, and she's she's an amazing resource for authors, particularly those who are self-publishing. There is so much information on there. It's not funny. Now, but the thing that really caught my eye was that this post is about repetitive strange in, uh, strange, repetitive strange injury, 
repetitive strain injury um, or RSI. And this is something that writers don't talk about that much. And it's something that we should think about more often because as she says in this post, a writer's life is not an inherently healthy one. Um, you know, we sit for long periods of time, we're hunching over our keyboards, we're doing all that sort of stuff. And she has just been, she's had some back problems and she's just been diagnosed with the beginning stages of RSI in her right wrist, elbow and upper arm. And she went to the doctor, went to the physio, had an ergonomic assessment, did all these things, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then the post goes on because she has a guest section written by another um, author whose name is Mary Ann, and I think it's Scutio. I couldn't pronounce it if I tried, so I won't. I just did, but anyway. Um, and she has chronic RSI, and she it's, she talks about trying to be an author with chronic RSI, how much writing she can do, how much writing she can't do. Um, it is a cautionary tale, and it is something that made me go, Alison, you need to go to a physio because I've had niggles in various, like in my wrists, in my elbow. Um, I do a lot of writing. I sit at my, you know, I type fast. I type often. I've been mm. doing it since I was like 18 mm. years old. Um, it starts to build up. And I, my tendency is to ignore it because I think that that's what a lot of people do. They ignore yeah. it. This made me think I can't ignore this anymore. Yeah. And so I booked an appointment with my physio. So I want to draw everyone's attention to the post and I want to say if you have a niggle, if there is a niggle in your shoulder or your wrist or your elbow, or if your hands are a little stiffer than they used to be, please go and see someone about it because it can be really problematic. Yes, absolutely. And Marianne talks about using an Evoluent sideways mouse, which I bought as well. Oh, did you? And it did improve my um, – I found it hard to get used to at first, but, um, and, uh, but it did improve the pain I had in my um, – right oh, arm okay yeah it was good um and I found it I found it very easy for writing but very hard for uh um you know sub editing on InDesign mm. or anything like that but mm. you know a lot of writers don't have to do that mm. and I used to have really I used to have back pain and um especially when I was writing my book and I was just writing a lot and um uh, nothing. I was just trying all sorts of things, and to be honest, finally, an, I bought an Aeron chair, and it was almost instantaneous. My back pain went away. Well, it's funny you say that because I've been talking about buying one of those for ages, and I haven't done it. And I just, I've basically decided that that needs to be my next. Yeah, I mean, it cost a small thing. fortune, but it was worth it. My back pain just went away. Mm. So okay. there you anyway, go. this all right. advice. It's good news all round. You have another link for us. Do I? Yes, about in the world of blogging. Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> so glad you reminded me of that. Um, so I just wanted to draw everyone's attention to um, a very good craft blog. Um, it's called LiveWriteThrive.com. It's a, the blog of an author and editor by the name of C.S. Lakin, L-A-K-I-N. Um, and at the moment, she is running a series on dialogue. And it's very much nuts and bolts how to put your dialogue together what to do if it doesn't sound right. There's one called Unnecessary Discourse, Talking Heads and the British Butler Syndrome, which I particularly liked. Um, and she actually gives examples of what, you know, what the, what it looked like before and what it looked like after it was edited. And, it, you know, it, it takes into account the importance of, you know, when you write dialogue for books, you don't need to do the hi, how are you stuff. Mm. I'm well, how are you? Before you, you just want to basically get to the crux. But you also 
want to avoid the situation where you've got two heads talking to each other. So you've got nothing but dialogue, dialogue, dialogue without any sort of movement written into it, how to write the movement in, that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, but her blog is very good. There is a lot of craft stuff. She does get into the nuts and bolts tax of things. And I think that um, if you're looking to improve, you know, any sort of aspect of your um of your writing, it's definitely worth a, a blog worth having a good rummage around in. Mm, I think it's. I think the thing about dialogue, uh, so that's why this um, post is uh, particularly interesting, is that it's quite a rookie mistake to have the talking heads yeah. and to have you know John talking and then Bob talking, then John talking, then Bob talking, and it's very much sort of um, like what you see on television. It's how you'd write a television script, but it's not how you would write fiction. Say. Yeah, because with the television script, you have to explain stuff you, through. You have to explain the background through dialogue, whereas you can just mm. write it in the narrative with fiction. Mm. I, I particularly like the description of the British Butler syndrome as well. Yes, um, this malady occurs when all characters speak similarly, using complete sentences and formal wording, like a British <laughs> Butler. In my years as an editor, I've worked with a few authors who, due to rules they learned in school, always wrote in complete sentences and never used contractions in their writing. So, you know, you end up with all your characters sounding exactly the same. And um, I, I think one very, very easy way to remedy that particular problem is to read your work aloud yeah. because it's amazing. Like when I was writing the Mapmaker Chronicles, I read them aloud to my oldest son, all three of them, before, like whilst before doing the second edit on them, basically the second draft, because um, you, there is nothing, nothing will highlight quicker for you where the errors are than yep. reading it out loud because you just go, oh, that's not right, and then you start making notes all the way through. So read it aloud. You can hear it, particularly with dialogue. Have you been watching this show that's been on recently called Banished? No. Okay, so it's um, uh, Australian. It's like Arrow. <laughs> 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 it's an Australian and BBC production and it's about the first months of the first fleet in Sydney. Oh. You know, when um, uh, Governor Arthur Phillip was here and, you know, the yes. first lot of 1,071 convicts or whatever it was and them actually trying to have a settlement. And um, they – it's it's a very good production. David Wenneman is in it and a number of British actors and some – Ryan Core, who's also an Australian actor. What, and, um, what, what channel is it on? How have I missed it? Is it on um, Netflix or something? I'm not no, cool enough. No, no, no. I think it's on, it's on normal TV. I can't remember. But it's been on. I think it only just finished. I'm, but I'm hoping there's a second season because I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I learned a lot um, about – well, I don't know how historically accurate it is, but I've learned a lot about the First Fleet. However, um, the, the, when they wrote the dialogue, when the screenwriters wrote the dialogue, they obviously decided that people on the First Fleet spoke a certain way and we're watching it and my partner says to me, I think that the scriptwriters didn't know that apostrophes existed oh, <laughs> because no. everything is will you not go to the governor with me? <laughs> I did not want to do that. I have not got a <laughs> some rum to offer you. I have no rum to offer you. That's hilarious. Yeah, so it's all, you know, there's no contractions. in The, the first fleet had no contractions. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. But anyway, let us move on to who is our writer in residence this week? Well, as I hinted earlier because yes. I – couldn't help myself. Um, we are talking to Meredith Kerno today, and mm. she is the uh, publisher at Random House of the. Here, look, I'm just I'm being tested here because I don't have it in front of me. Um, of the Knopf and Vintage um, imprints at Random House, and she 
is a, she's been around, you know, doing her thing, doing it extremely well for a long time. She's the founding director of the Sydney Writers Festival. Mm. So she has a lot of really interesting things to say about being published, getting published, writers festivals. We had a great conversation. It's a it's a slightly longer interview. So, you know, strap yourselves in because it's going to be fun. Um, but I hope you really enjoy what Meredith has to say. Meredith Kurnow is the publisher of the Knopf and Vintage Imprints at Penguin Random House, looking after both fiction and non-fiction, and has been with the company for 12 years. She was the founding director of the Sydney Writers Festival from 1998 to 2002. So welcome, Meredith. Thanks, Alison. All right. So let's just start with a quick rundown of your duties as a publisher, because I think there's um, some confusion out there of the difference between an editor and a publisher, etc. Does a typical day for you entail hands-on editing, or are you more involved in sort of project management and finding new talent and that sort of stuff? Um, that's a good question, because there is no typical day, of course. There are so many different parts to the role. But yes, more days are spent in um, sourcing new books, uh, managing authors and project managing books. That said, I spent the whole of yesterday from 9.30 till 10 to 6 in the room with an author working on a manuscript. So at at very much a structural edit stage. Right. So you are structural editing as well as, as doing all these other bits and pieces that you do. You know, it's, look, it's a bit of a random house policy, actually. Well, that's, I should say it was when I started. And so if that, you know, your practice is that, you keep it up, I suppose. Mm. So we were always expected to do the structural edits on our books. And most of my colleagues still do, actually, including our publishing director. She generally would do the um, structural edit on her books too. Wow. Okay. So... You know, in the role that you have, you must do an incredible amount of reading. Like, how do you fit it all in? Mm. <laughs> how do you fit it all yeah. in? <laughs> and look, the reading is, imp- I, I try and read in the morning when um, perhaps healthier people than I are out running or at the gym <laughs> or meditating. <laughs> I, I try and read in the morning fresh manuscripts, not, not things that I'm working on because I just find that I'm brighter then and, and I have better concentration and then you know once I'm at the office I'm working on books that are already um, signed up or or on our list tends to be my process Um, but yeah you've got to keep reading all the time and of course one of the things that I think is really important in my role is that I'm also reading all around the books that I'm publishing so I really try and stay on top of Australian fiction and non-fiction too although I'm better at reading in the fiction area. So, I mean, that was a question I was going to ask you. you so you're, you're kind of you're reading for work constantly, like even when you're reading for pleasure, you're also reading for work, aren't you? I mean, does it, how do you, do you still enjoy reading? <laughs> I guess that's my question. Yeah, look, it's a complete and utter pleasure. And, you know, it only takes a good book or 10 pages of a good book to remember why reading is one of the most exquisite joys in life. But it, everyone I know in publishing, whenever we've got a few days off, and indeed I'm having a long weekend, not this weekend, but next weekend, and I already know the two books that I'm taking. Oh, okay. you know, you, you're always planning ahead for your personal reading just to um, get those moments in because, of course, we are all reading all the time for work. You know, many a uh, book that comes out, I'll have read it, you know, eight times. It's perfectly standard to have been through a manuscript before it's in that final bound form. So now I have to ask you what two books you're taking because clearly 
They must I'm be taking, good. <laughs> on your list, right? I'm taking Lila, the Marilyn Robinson novel that's on the uh, long list for the yeah. booker. I've, I've oh, read yeah. all of her other novels and absolutely adored them, so I can't wait to read that. And Sophie Laguna, The Eye of the Sheep. Ah, right. My book club has just read that to rave reviews and, you know, the, the notion that it should actually come with a warning it's so immersive. So there you go. So I'm sure you'll oh, love that. Perfect. Then, yes. yeah. You know, good flight reading. And yeah, yeah exactly. I'll probably do some crying in public. Is that true, I think Probably, think? yeah. I think so. Oh. Yeah, that should be good. Um, so when you're actually reading a manuscript, like you said you read in the mornings and you're looking at submissions, how much of it do you need to read to know whether or not you want to read more? Yeah, look, I probably read too much and <laughs> I've never been able to, I've reduced it, but I've never been able to cut right down. If in the non-fiction area, a lot of it is um, proposals, so a, yeah. a broad outline, a few chapters, and that's obviously much easier to manage. So you can you know, get through those, although I would generally try and read one if, and if I've finished it then great I'll read the paper that morning or something but you know I try not to read two in a row just so you've got a clear head and can recall mm. what you've just read for fiction it's much harder because we all know that you can chuck out the first three chapters of something and then a novel can really start so mm. I tend to read at least 50 pages and, and I know that um, it's not recommended people are always telling me oh you should be able to tell in the first two pages your first 10 pages this mm. that and the other but I would generally read 50 um, sometimes 100 often I'll read a whole manuscript knowing that I'm not going to offer but I just think it's a really quality manuscript oh, right. <laughs> unfortunately it's just not right for my list but I just keep thinking oh 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 and read the whole way through and what will you do in a case like that? Will you just go back and say, look, I really loved your work, but it's not right for me? Like, keep going? Mm. Or, I mean, do you do you get to that or do you send the form letter? Oh, no, that, I, we don't have a form letter as far as I'm aware. <laughs> <laughs> no one's ever given me one. I mean, certainly um, the person who manages non-solicited manuscripts that come in via the mailroom, they probably do get a, a a form letter, mm. I think, but um, anything that's actually come direct to me or through an agent, I, I will usually just send a paragraph or two. And there is no doubt that I do, if if I've really enjoyed it and I think it's publishable, but just not right for me or not right for us at that time, I will write a couple of paragraphs and encourage them to continue mm. to pursue publication. But there is no doubt that you will be trying not to engage in an ongoing communication mm. with the person who, with that writer, if I think the writer or the book isn't right for my list any time in the future. If mm. it's just that manuscript is the one that I think is not for me, but I think there's they've probably got another one in them that is, then I will write more. That's for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, because I think one of the things that one of the things that frustrates, um, I know, you know, aspiring authors who are submitting a lot of work or, and even, you know, probably people who've been published before is the fact that the process can feel like it takes a very long time. And there's that notion that perhaps you've sent it in and it's sitting on someone's desk and it's going to sit there for months and months and months. But I guess it's important to remember just how much care and time that you are taking, like you're reading at least 50 pages, you're taking the time to go back to people. I, I guess that, you know, if, if, if authors can keep that in mind, it might make the whole process maybe the waiting less painful, do you think? Absolutely. Look, I completely appreciate the agony of it. I really do. But that is the thing. If, if they want 
proper consideration of every submission, I really do believe if they just stop and think that through, they'll realise that, oh, this is going to take time. This isn't, you know, they only need to talk amongst their peers and they'll realise they're not the only person who sent something in. And look, managing um, submissions and the work that you've already got underway is a really tough thing and I've always struggled with that. You know, should I be looking ahead for new manuscripts today or should I be working on all those um, manuscripts that are in train? You know, we publish at least 15 new books a year and then there'll be second formats that come out as well that may or may not have an extra chapter but they'll certainly have a new cover. Yeah. All of those things you're managing as well as looking for new writers and new authors and doing that journal reading, keeping in touch with the industry. So there's a lot going on in the day, but I absolutely appreciate that it's um, really difficult for people who are waiting. I think it's I think it's easy to sometimes forget how big a project a book can be and how many words, you know, like if, if it takes you X number of months, years, whatever, to write them, it does still actually take quite quite a bit of time to read them as well. So I guess that's yeah. important. <laughs> Having said that, though, have you found a gem in the slush pile in recent memory? Look, I bought a, I bought in a novel from the slush pile um, this year. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I know, I know, it, uh, and you can, I can tell you, it's great to be able to say that. <laughs> and I hadn't bought one for a while, but there, I do think that probably we would find something in the slush pile once a year at least. That right. you know, Certainly my um, colleague, Bev, who publishes fiction, she's a commercial fiction publisher, mm-hmm. I think she would get something almost every year. Um, we certainly pull the um, occasional piece of non-fiction out of there as well, which I do think uh, we, we do get an extraordinary amount. It's, it's quite overwhelming, but we do have a meeting once a month and there's about 20 people that attend that meeting to go through the submissions. Right. But I do believe that the submissions are becoming better. Like There's more and more information on our website, on pretty much everyone else's website. There are so many different avenues for getting direction of how to submit to publishers, I think, that the submissions are becoming more targeted and, and clearer. So I, I think that's probably why we're picking things up more often. Yeah, okay. Well, that, well, that was something I wanted to ask you about because, as you say, like, the you know, you, you read things that are great but not for you um, and that, you know, you're, get, you're getting more targeted manuscripts and things. But can you explain briefly, you know, how imprints work, what aspiring authors need to know about them and how, how to find the right publisher for your particular manuscript? I think that um, bookstores, be they online or the ones on the high street, are the best place to do research for writers who are looking to be published. You you know, just to go into a bookstore, give yourself a couple of hours, give yourself half an hour perhaps if that's all you've got, just browsing the shelves, looking at books, looking in the section and just, you know, think where in this store do I want my book to be? Um, You know, is it in the memoir? Is it in... um, health is it in women's fiction is it in literary fiction and then just look at the books around that and look at who published them the inside a book it actually on the imprint page it'll give you full details of the publishing house including their address the acknowledgements page of a book is always a source of a lot of information they'll often mention their editor or publisher not always mm-hmm. <laughs> but often they do and um then you know, note the publishing houses that you think 
are right for you. So a book that I have published, almost everything that I publish will have vintage or Knopf on it. Mm -hmm. Knopf is only a hardback imprint, so we don't do a lot in that. Right. But if I've published it, it'll usually say vintage. So a vintage Australia title will be me or Nikki Christa, our publishing director. So you know, you find, if you find a few books that are vintage Australian, you think, gosh, this is just like, you know, sits right in the area that my novel sits as well then you should think, oh, I'm the right person. If it's an Alan and Unwin book that most kind of strikes at your heart, contact Alan and Unwin mm. or indeed contact both Random House and Alan Unwin. It's probably a better idea. <laughs> and um, making sure that you tell each of them that you've also submitted to another house, of course. Of course, <laughs> right. of course. But imprints, are, we, we do discuss them a lot. And now the, the ones that I work under are long-standing. Vintage has only been in Australia for maybe about 15 years, I think it is, mm -hmm. but um, has existed in the UK and the US for longer than that. Knopf has been around for a hundred years this year. Mm -hmm. Alfred A. Knopf established it. Yeah, so long-standing imprints. And, and, you know, here at Random House, we also have Ebury and Heinemann and all sorts of other bantam is is a really long standing one as well. Mm. So really they're just trying to give you the imprint tries to give you an idea of what you will find within that group. So you know right. if it's vintage you know it'll be um a quality writing, writing of a, a certain standard, probably not a piece of writing that you're going to whip through at 100 miles an hour. Mm. Um, you know, there's going to be a good few hours reading in that book, I would imagine. Other books, of course, they want you to just race through yeah. and have a cliffhanger at the end of every chapter kind of thing. Right. But so they're, basically, they're like a brand. Yeah. The imprint is like a brand. Yeah. So find it, you know, like you basically need to think about where, because I think that's the other thing that often happens is that, you know, if you can't really describe where your book might sit on the bookshelf, you might have to think a bit, like maybe clear it up a little bit in your in your thoughts. Do you think, like, if, yeah. if there's no clear spot for it? Yeah, absolutely, and and that's why I do think bookstores, and you know, you can do this online as well. Obviously, search around in the different categories, and there are gosh, metadata these days gives you so many categories of yeah. books to go through. And, um, yeah, perhaps you just haven't thought about it particularly clearly. I was, I was talking to some writing students just earlier this week and um, they'd all, all put really specific genres on the pages that I'd read and I said, were you told to do this? And they said, yes. And I don't. I don't think about books in genres. I really don't. I look to the writing. I look to the voice of the writer and that... I suppose I really do think in my imprint, which um, who knows which came first, was I or was I kind of trained in that way? But I don't think about it within vintage. I have published um, thrillers. I publish high literary fiction. I publish mainstream fiction. I've published humour. I probably haven't published much in the way of. I don't think I published any romance, but um, that doesn't mean I wouldn't if, mm. if I didn't feel like the writing and the voice fit into that. Yeah, okay. So it's very much, yeah, so you, you, it's almost like a, to, like a tone and a quality you're looking for as opposed to a style of writing per se. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, certainly if you know, think about Kate Forsyth, an author who I publish, who, whose work always has, you know, it's almost impossible to classify the moment she's been, we've just published the third of her novels that re 
re the fairy tale retelling exactly that's yes. that kind of that you know they're not even straight that of course either and the the current one is set in World War Two so it's you know it's historical fiction but it's mm. retelling a fairy tale what's mm. the genre for that mm. you know her, the first one in that in this series Bitter Greens had a lot of magic in it mm. and so of course people because of the fairy tale thing and people here were saying is it speculative fiction I was going no because you you believe that that is real <laughs> <laughs> so you know things aren't always classifiable but I still do think that bookstore hunt will give you a really good feel of where your book should be on the shelf. Or, you know, David Mitchell is someone I think about as well. His books aren't genre books so much, but um, they're more about a kind of writing and a kind of world he -hmm. creates. Mm. All right. Well, so what are some of the mistakes that you see, you know, over and over again in submitted manuscripts? I mean, beyond sending it to the wrong place are there certain things that you see regularly happen and you kind of see it and go oh I wish you hadn't done that like what sort of things do you see yeah so you're absolutely right the number one that you pointed out is sending them to the wrong house you know yes. we say we don't publish science fiction we don't publish poetry and of course we get poetry and science fiction we also get things um, that are YA or children's books and our children's division has a completely different set of submission guidelines so you know that that's the biggest time waster but then letters the cover letters which you know they they are it's the first time we approach your voice and if some people just say this is bigger than Dan Brown um, you know E.L. James the Bible blah 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 you you wouldn't believe how often that happens and that's we all know that's not true (laughs) those things yeah look (laughs) They come up, they happen so rarely, those that kind of zeitgeist moment of yeah. something that just takes off and everyone wants it. But they're not they're not created. They really come out of nowhere. <laughs> those you know, no one knew E.L. James was going to take off in the way she did. So rather than just um and and you know, we read that over and over again. So people are much better being targeted. I always say think about it as a job application. Yeah. You get one chance, polish it make it the best it can be. And you know, I, I think starting out with Dear Sir is a little bit of a pain given the constitution of most publishing houses. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, there's just a few things that can just be off, off-putting when you are going through hundreds of submissions mm. in an afternoon. So just try and keep it as targeted, as honest as possible, You know, rather than building yourself up, be... Be really honest in there and just talk about yourself, talk about the manuscript that's attached, be warm and friendly and encourage people to do it. Yeah, and not being a smart aleck either, but some of them are just <laughs> right. <laughs> quite a shock. And, and ideally don't handwrite. We, we get handwritten things and it, it's just that it can be hard to read. We, we mm. see so little handwriting in our lives these days that it just can be hard to read handwritten submissions. Mm. I don't handwrite anything anymore. I can't read my shopping lists. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's terrible. Isn't it? I do still handwrite some things, but my hand hurts afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So as a publisher, do you take an author's profile or platform into consideration when you're deciding whether or not to publish a manuscript? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's relevant. But um, it, certainly it's not, and it's relevant in a different way for different books. Nonfiction, it's mm. pretty important because generally they're going to need to have some kind of authority in that area. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it might just be the point of, is this really the person they say they are? So mm. you need to understand that kind of 
stuff, or are they the right person to be promoting this idea, this event, yes. this whatever? So in nonfiction, it's particularly important. In fiction, not so much, but of course, you want to know that they can talk about their work. I don't, you know, I've, I've never actually looked to see what it, what someone's Twitter following is, or you know, checked their LinkedIn profile or their. Um, I can't even remember the name now. That score you get when the amount oh, of the cloud, cloud, yeah, the cloud. But of course, when I'm taking it to acquisitions and our marketing people start to talk about that, if that's high, if they've got lots of followers, that's fantastic. But a constant discussion is again. This came up the other night when I was talking to some writing students. How, how many, how many tweets do you have to send to sell, to yeah, sell a book? Yeah. You know, I I see on Twitter discussions following those lines all the time. Yeah. I I think it's useful, but I I hate the idea that people are spending so much time on social media that they're not writing their work, they're yeah. not being true to their own work. That yeah. they, I I think it works best. Like Graham Simpson is amazing, and it's so perfectly natural to him to yeah. promote his work. Yeah. It, it's just him. It's part of his character. But to create this whole other persona mm. to be able to promote your work, I, I just think it's flawed, the yeah. idea of it. Yeah, I think it has to be an extension of who you are and it mm. has to be whatever you find easy. That's always been my premise with it. Um, okay, so with nonfiction, are you mostly working in the areas of like memoir and biography or what sorts of, like, what are you looking for in that in that area? Um, in any great ideas, really. So narrative nonfiction. I do do. Um, I've done a little bit of, of military history. Um, I work with a writer called Stephen Bando Collins, who's fantastic at discovering undiscovered people and facts in Australian history and, and exploring those in different ways. He's also written some family histories. That was indeed his his most successful book. It was just amazing. It's incredible when you put your own emotions in, into a story in that way when it has really affected your family. Um, uh, I, I love a book that just explores an idea. I published this narrative nonfiction called The End, looking at death, just exploring oh, right. all the different approaches to death wow. that started when this wonderful science journalist, Bianca O'Grady, was sitting at her grandmother's bedside and, you know, she and her cousins were laughing. Sometimes they'd forget their granny was there <laughs> and just how it brought them together. And it really made her think about all the different ways of approaching death. And it's it's just the most extraordinary book and a, a really challenging book to work on, of course, and to ensure it's comprehensive. But... Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm working on an adoption memoir at the moment, co-written by the um, biological mother and the woman who discovered at, when she was almost 50 that she'd been adopted. Um, so anything that's a really strong idea um, with great writing behind it. Okay, so a memoir doesn't need to be written by a well-known author to get, you know, for oh, you to be no. interested. No, not at all. It's just got to be a great story. Okay. And, and, you know, obviously they're the writing and my imprints, the writing's got to be really strong as well. Writing's got to be good in all imprints, of course. Yes. But um, for, to be in vintage, the, it's the a writing has to be. Yeah, yeah, it is. It okay. is. You've also, I think, worked on some amazing biographies in your time. Is this correct? Um, well, an amazing autobiography, autobiography, Julia yes. Gillard. Yes, that's, what you're that's <laughs> yes, that's where I'm going with that. Wrong that word. Was, Alison, that was. Yeah. That was. Um, yeah, look, that was a really extraordinary thing to do, and I'd worked with people in 
politics before, but never anyone <laughs> who'd been to quite that level mm. in their career. And one of the things that was so challenging about that was that it was so soon after some mm. really, really torrid events. Well, really, three years of torrid events. Still going on, really. <laughs> yes, that's right. It hasn't stopped. So that, that was a really, um, I must say, three challenging nonfiction books last year. You think, oh, you know, I'm going to work on more nonfiction this year. That would be a nice change for me and a bit of a relief. And wow, wow. Not so much. <laughs> you forget each book is just as hard as another one, all in different ways. But yeah, that, that was a really fantastic experience. And just um, looking, and, and you know, I did all the structural work on that book as well. Mm. Julia Gillard was amazing to work with. She, she met every deadline. Um, she listened and responded to every single comment but had strong ideas herself. Wow. She, it, it really was um, a, yeah, an exemplary working process. Because oh, really. I'd imagine there would be some challenges faced in getting, I mean particularly that's a as you say a torrid story in itself, but getting the best story from a well-known face. Like is it is it difficult yeah. when you're dealing, you know, with what such is, a... What can be hard is to push someone mm-hmm. beyond where they want to go. And yeah. they don't... You're right. If they're a well-known person, that's a little bit harder. I, I was meeting with the um, people writing the adoption memoir last night and one of the things that I said to them, and it's exactly the same with Julia Gillard, whoever it is, I am going to ask you to give me things that you don't want to give me, but you just say no. There will be privacy issues related to this. You can say no, but I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't try and push you mm. to put as much in here as you possibly can. Mm. Because I think the temptation would be with those kinds of stories to gloss over the bits that really hurt to write because writing can be very painful can't it so and as you say privacy yeah Yeah. so I think you know and I know myself just from being edited that sometimes you know someone's shoving you to push it further and push it further and you just like it's just like I can't do this it hurts you know like I I don't want to do this it hurts because I did it the first time and now I don't want to go back there (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that is so true. We, you know, you've hit the nail on the head. We are asking you to relive some of the most difficult experiences of your life and relive them publicly mm. in writing and publicly. And, mm. you know, that's sometimes why you've signed a book up, of course. Yeah, yeah, of <laughs> so, course. That, so there's an obligation to go there, but always to go only as far as you can. That said, there have been some very um, famous cases of public persons who left very large holes in their book, in mm. their books, and you know that, that's really not on. And in no. the end, those books don't fly. They, they, because they don't sound true, I always it's such a, a weird thing to try and explain. But one of the overarching rules of writing for me is the work must always read as true. If it's fiction or non-fiction, it mm. needs to sound authentic. It needs to sound real. It needs to sound true to who the writer is. Mm. That's excellent advice too for everyone to be taking on board. So just segueing, changing the subject slightly, let's talk about writers' festivals and conferences because I think you spend a fair amount of your life at these things mm-hmm. um, and you, of course, directed the Sydney Writers' Festival. But when writers corner you, first of all, do you hate being cornered at festivals and conferences? By no. <laughs> <laughs> let's just get that out of the way no. first, shall we? <laughs> No, look, I think um, good on people for pursuing conversations with 
publishers and editors whenever they can. I mean, toilets can be hard. Oh. <laughs> I've heard about that. I have heard about people pursuing. Uh, yep, I've been trapped in toilets oh, no. and um, certainly just recently I was talking at South Australian Writer Centre with a couple of other publishers from other houses and um, <laughs> one of them had had a manuscript put under the toilet no. door while she was in there. I've had people wait for me outside the toilet and talk to me in the toilet but um, never put a manuscript under the door. <laughs> I'm not sure how hygienic that is, oh, really, floors and toilets. So just while you're in there, you've got a few minutes. Here you are. <laughs> <laughs> but um, look, I, I do think that, I, I think good on them, I think that um, the publishing process can be difficult to unpack to understand how it all works, what goes on inside there. So I'm, I'm absolutely open to it. But I, I think just like in any kind of approach that respect is due to mm. whoever you're talking to. So if you are trying to go to the toilet, please let someone go to the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> They're is, getting jiggy it's for a proper reason. <laughs> are the sort of what kind of questions are people asking you most frequently? Is it will you read my work or is there you know, are there others that come up regularly? Yeah, it's not just, will you read my work? And funnily enough, I think that one's dropped off. People aren't trying to push work at you so immediately. Mm. Um, it's more questions of process and how it's going on and who should they send their work to and why should they be published. Or sometimes, of course, it's challenges about, you know, well, what it, you're the gatekeepers of blah, blah, oh, blah. Yeah. Why can't I get my work published? That kind of thing. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah. I, th I think as long as there's respect in the engagement on both parts, of course, the publisher and or editor should be respectful as well. I, I think it's fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> take okay. Your, take your chances. <laughs> All right. So, um, you know, when you were directing the Sydney Writers Festival as a, someone who's who has directed a festival, what kind of things do did you take into consideration when planning the program? Like, I'm just thinking from the perspective of authors who might be interested in getting onto the radar of a festival director. What, what, how would they go about doing that? Most of the, um, because it was the first year of Sydney Writers Festival, obviously it was much smaller than it is now. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. enormous now. And so mostly, then I was very open to partnerships. So I was always dealing with, say, the New South Wales Writers' Centre, the Australian Society of Author, yeah. pretty much poetry societies, all the organisations going. I would meet with them and I suppose they were a funnel to help me curate a program. Okay. It, was, it was always important to me. I, had, I maintained that I'd been employed to curate a program, that the board who had employed me were follow were keen that I had a vision and I followed that. So I didn't feel that I owed an obligation to a particular writer or a particular organisation to push forward whatever their agenda was at that time. Mm. It, it is still a curated program as far as I'm aware, but it certainly was when I was there. But if there are things going on in the world, if there's um, you know a trend, you probably want to make sure that's addressed. Um, Obviously, writers' festivals have become they're almost festivals of ideas at the moment. Sometimes mm. I worry that there's not as much literature in the festival as I would like to see. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just putting that out but, there. Um, yes, that's right. But, you know, I think that's brilliant as well that they are providing forums for conversations, conversations between the stage and the people in the audience. And... You know, I, I would like to call them readers and believe they're readers, mm. <laughs> that it's not just all about talking up there on the stage, that they are going to go and pursue ideas further, not just the ideas of that of the person who is speaking, but ideas around that as well. Mm. But um, 
Yeah, I, I, I do feel like the writers' festival directors should be given room to kind of push readers further, push the audiences further without being really restricted, okay. um, you know, to be given obligations. You must do this, you must do that, you must do that. I, I just think that's impossible to cover every kind of genre and sub-genre out there mm. and every group going. But um, that said, I think it's great to bring different things to their attention because they life is, is those festivals are big, life is busy, mm. it's pretty easy to miss something. So I, I think... Um, People should submit to festivals as well. Because they are open to, they generally publishers submit on authors' behalves. Is that how it usually works? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So you would you would need to let your publisher know that you have you know something to offer. Yeah, certainly they get direct submissions as well. There's mm. no denying that, mm. and and uh, I presume they're reasonably welcome. But I would check with the festival first. I mean, don't go sending in a heap of stuff if, to all the festivals without checking with them that they're open to that. But it's, it's not just publishers by any means. It is all those different organisations are doing the same. Mm. I think it's probably, um, would you agree, a good idea too that if, it, if it's a, something that you're interested in as an author, that often starting with a small, because there are so many literary festivals and writers' festivals and things now, that starting with smaller ones and kind of, you know, practicing can be a good thing. That, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> I've never even thought that through before, which is terrible. But um, if I think about the smaller festivals, yeah, the audiences are more open to them and, and certainly the free festivals as well. You're more mm. likely to get an audience mm. than you are to the ones where you have to buy a ticket to every session mm. if, you're, if you're new and unknown. Mm. That said, a lot of the festivals also will mix the lesser-known writers with some of the more prominent writers to, to bring attention to new writers too, which I think is really exciting yeah, and really fantastic. important to yeah. do. But, yeah, I think some of those smaller festivals can just be fantastic. All right. Well, that sort of brings us to the end of our interview. We have to do the final what are your top three tips for aspiring writers um, thing, which I'm throwing at you because I hadn't warned you about this at all. So <laughs> I'm just... <laughs> Just while, I'll just give you two seconds to think about that. Um, well, certainly, I know what number one is, is read, 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 <laughs> And number two is write, 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 write. And three, I suppose, is probably reread your work and edit it after having a break, put it in a drawer, step away, come back to it, get it out, read it again and rewrite. Do you st- are you seeing like manuscripts that you think, oh, I wish you'd edited this another, you know, at least once and then sent it to me? Yep, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Someone just asked me the other night, so, you know, I can submit my manuscript and then, you know, after you send it back, I can submit it again. I'm like, well, yeah, but why wouldn't you just do all that work on it the first time before you submit it? <laughs> <laughs> so do the work, do as much work as you think it needs and then probably another bit of work before you send it in. Well, yeah, and one more final read just to make sure that, um, you know, the spelling's reasonably correct and you just haven't left, uh, you know, a redhead character just lurking there that had no additional role, that the rest of their story had been removed, but they're still lurking. <laughs> just the random character. <laughs> it happens, it happens. And, the you know, random redhead. And the best of writers as well, so uh, why wouldn't it happen to new writers? Well, I'm sure it's happened to me many times. All right, <laughs> Meredith, thank you so much for your time today. I'm sure that our um, listeners would have got a lot out of our conversation today, so I really appreciate your um, appreciate your thoughts. Thank you. 
My pleasure. Thanks, Alison. Bye. Bye. What a great interview with Meredith. Yeah, it was it was great. I, was, I, I love those. I mean, you know, just I have to say the podcast from that perspective of giving me the opportunity <laughs> to talk to all these amazing people yep. is just oh it's amazing I, I I'm it, I feel really blessed I'm very lucky it's great yeah I hope you guys all enjoy the fruits of our labors because it's um you know it's kind of fun yeah it's always great to hear from the publishers and not just the authors as well because you know and and you know we've also spoken to agents just into Tomas recently and uh just to get a full you know, the full perspective of the whole publishing ecosystem. Well, that's right. And I think that her her comments about the fact that, you know, she pulls a great manuscript from the slush pile at least once a year, and I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but given that she they published, you know, 15 books a year, uh, that's pretty good odds, people. Like yeah. it's not, you know, like everyone goes, oh, the slush pile, whatever. But, you know, they are reading the slush pile and they are finding the gems. So if yours, if yours is a gem... It's going to be there. Yep. So do it. Anyway, do it. All right. So let us move on to our app pick for the week. And there's been so much discussion about Periscope. I thought we would give Periscope a quick mention. For those of you who are not familiar with Periscope, it's an app on your phone and basically it's it's streaming video. So basically you turn it on and you start talking to the world, to whoever wants to watch. And surprisingly, quite a number of people tune in because a notification will come up on your phone. I think it's linked to Twitter. So a notification comes up to your Twitter followers that you are on Periscope and then you can just start talking or or you can start showing video of whatever. Um, Now, you've done a Periscope, Al. (laughs) I have, you know, because, you know, I'm such an early adopter of this kind of technology because, you know, it's really me, isn't it? Live streaming video. Yes, I have done a Periscope. Um, It was part of the Where I Write uh, series that Ashet has done around the world. Yes. Um, And I've got to say, like, you know, it's not my natural forte, Mm. live streaming video. So I did find it quite challenging from a, to a degree. I, I did a few practice sessions just using the camera on my phone as in, you know, not broadcasting, mm. just to have a look at, you know, what I was doing and how much I was showing. Because the other thing is like I'm, I'm not actually that interested in displaying the entire contents of my house to the world and mm. I'm not that interested. Like I, I, I showed my writing, where I write, I showed my garden and Procrasty Pub clearly had a starring role because, <laughs> you know, he's about the most interesting thing I do. Um so I did all that, but yeah, and I, I found Periscope, look, it's pretty easy to use, like once you get the hang of it. I had a couple of little practice goes using ProcrastiPub as a subject because it's not, uh, and I read a blog post about this recently, and I'm sorry, I can't find the link, so I can't share it. It's not entirely intuitive, like some of the camera, like to, you have to double tap to turn the camera around, and it's not like, you know, there's just like a camera icon like there is on your iPhone where you just press it and it turns for you. There's a bit of like faffing about that goes on, and you will... Um, the actual Periscope that I did was saved uh, and put up on whereirite.tv. So you, and we'll put the link in the show notes. You can actually watch me in shaky cam action because <laughs> it's, you know, really worth it. Um, but yeah, there's a few places there where I've got the weirdest expression on my face because I'm trying to turn the camera. <laughs> 
and it's not doing what I wanted to do. So, <laughs> yeah, because when you're live streaming, you can't edit those bits out. Um, but look, I can see why it's addictive. People really love it. I've got lots of friends who really, really love it because if you are there and you're doing something interesting, you can just, you know, off you go with it. Um, and it's instant feedback because you're actually getting in real time yeah. comments from people who are watching who can ask you questions. Hearts. People are flinging love hearts at you. Mm. If they like it, they're just, there's like love hearts going off. So every time I procrastinate pup came on the screen, the love heart oh. came up like a billion and then there was just me and there was not much going on but anyway like it's look if it's it's a it's an interesting thing and, and everybody keeps saying it's just going to grow and grow and grow and mm. I know a lot of bloggers are jumping on it so yeah. you know if it's something that you find um is a natural fit for you I think it's a great thing to probably get into for uh, particularly you know if you're building an author platform you know showing behind the scenes stuff of what you're doing or research you're doing that sort of stuff like it could be really interesting but yeah I mean it's I think like- you need to actually have decent content like yours was decent content because you're talking about your writing process and where you write but mm. I think where it doesn't work is where just where you're just showing here is some kids playing in the playground or oh, like, and, here yeah. is like a sailing boat, isn't it beautiful? If yeah. you don't actually have a commentary going with it, yeah. it can't, you can just do Instagram video really. Well, I think you probably, I think it's like anything. I think if you're going to do, if you're going to do it as, as part of a, a building a platform sort of thing, you need to have some strategy around yes. it. Like think about what you're going to do, plan it in advance. Don't just like turn your camera on yep. and make it up as you go along because, you know, there's so much wafty content out yep. there on the internet. You don't need to be that. Yeah, have some structured things to say would be my recommendation. I've done a couple of periscopes and uh, they were quite fun, not really necessarily something I'm going to um, fling myself full pelt into, but um, they were quite fun. You could just put Rex in there. I could. Love him. I should just have live stream Rex. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let us move on to a great link that we've got. It's actually on the Australian Writer Centre blog, and it is by Liz Pulo, who uh, has written a post, have a late paying client, get your copywriting invoices paid now. So it's specifically a step-by-step approach. If you're a copywriter and you've sent your invoice to your client and it's just, you know, not yet, not seeing it, uh, it's a step-by-step approach on what you should do. So we'll just go through it briefly. Number one, she has said, schedule your time and set your limits. So if you don't actually have terms, as in seven-day terms or 14-day terms or 30-day terms, whatever it is, then you can't get cranky because you you didn't give people a deadline. Mm -hmm. Um, Once that deadline is up, then provide one week's grace, you know, because everyone can have a bad day or a bad week, you know, give them a little bit of leeway. Uh, but then start following up after that mm. and make sure that you um, take notes with any of the people that you speak to about, uh, you know, when, why it's been late or when it's likely to be paid. And if they say it's going to be paid in three weeks or whatever, follow up in three weeks if you're still not paid. So, yes. And also it's handy to remember what your terms are because I had this very hilarious <laughs> oh, I was fortunate that it was a nice accountant, but I had this fantastic moment where I was chasing a payment and he came back to me and he was just like, "Um, you've actually put 30 days on this." And I was like, "Oh." Yes. <laughs> That 
that's awkward. It's only been three weeks. <laughs> yes. And also what um, people do is, and I please don't do this as writers, is that if you're late in actually invoicing because you've been busy, you haven't got around to admin, six months later you decide to oh, invoice. No. Then ring up one day later and say, it's been six months, didn't I? I've done the job. That's just bad form. Yeah, really. And, you know, and also, don't please do don't leave it six months to invoice. Mm, oh, really? people do. And then no. they get cranky at you. Oh. You know, as an editor, I have, I've had to deal with those things. It's like, you only, you only sent it yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> and, you can wait. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and you know what I hate? I hate those automated, automated... Um, you know how when you use fresh books and quick, some of those online invoicing things, they have an, uh, some people who use them use an automated reminder that oh, will nice. send you send the client a reminder saying, "Oh, you know this invoice is due." But the thing is, I've actually paid them, but they haven't bothered to enter the payment into the system. Oh no! And it drives me bonkers because I then have to spend half an hour going through the paperwork to show that I've already, you know, it's already been paid and, and, and that's half an hour of my time gone. So I used to have a particular supplier who um, would always do that and I said, since you expect me to pay you late, I will fulfil your expectation. Oh, Valerie. So, you know, if, you, if you're going to send me reminder emails saying my stuff is late, I'll I'll just fulfil your expectations. So he turned off the reminders. <laughs> Don't cross the saying. <laughs> but you know, you're accusing someone of paying something late when they've actually paid early. Actually paid. Well, that's rude, isn't it? It's, it's terrible. Very rude. Very so be careful rude. if you're using those automatic reminders. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, well, I'm glad we got that out of your system. That's excellent. <laughs> Just a reminder to everyone because we get uh, the occasional tweet that asks us where the show notes are. It's at writerscentercomau slash podcast and you'll find all of the links and resources there as well. So in the meantime, what are you doing in this coming week? Well, I'm doing school visits because it's oh, book yes, week. So right. I've got lots of author chats. I'm going to be also going to um, – QBD bookshop at Shell Harbour and signing some books and nice. what else am I doing? And I'm just writing those things that I talked about before that are so boring that it's not worth writing what <laughs> talking about. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and you, what are you going to be doing? I will be heading to, back to Melbourne in a couple of days oh, yes, for the tail right. end of the Melbourne Writers Festival and to speak at a couple of other events. And um, so, yeah, that should be fun. See you all in Melbourne. But until then, you can find us on social media. I'm at Valerie Koo and Alison where are you oh well I think the best place to start is just at alisontate.com and then I'm on twitter at at altate a-l-t-a-i-t and the other things are just too confusing so go to alisontate.com and find me there (laughs) and of course stay to the end of this audio recording because you'll have a chance to win something I should have mentioned that earlier actually but yes we've got a regular thing now um, at the end of the program your chance to win a fabulous book on us but until next time it's been great talking to you we will chat to you next week bye 
Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. This week's giveaway is three books. The Pierre Junior Trilogy by David M. Henley, containing the books The Hunt for Pierre Junior, Manifestations, and Convergence, futuristic thrillers about connectivity, control, and artificial intelligence. Visit writerscentercomau slash win for your chance to win. Entries close Monday 31 August 2015, but if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry, there will be a new book giveaway at writerscentercomau slash win that you can check out. In the meantime, if you're looking for the show notes to this episode, go to writerscentercomau slash podcast.